Chapter Three of Some American Storytellers by Frederick Tabor Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Three, Winston Churchill. If there is any one writer among the American storytellers of today who best illustrates the familiar paradox that genius is a capacity for taking infinite pains, that writer is Mister Winston Churchill. That his novels are born of an inexhaustible patience a dogged determination to be true to his own stern exactions both in style and substance is a self-evident fact it is not necessary to know the prosaic details of his literary methods or even to remember that he considers three or four years none too long a time to bestow upon a single volume such matters do not concern the critic excepting in so far as they stand revealed by internal evidence and in the case of mr churchill they are woven into the very warp and woof of every page he writes there is no escape from the pervading sense of careful documentation plodding diligence endless repolishing it is impossible to read a single chapter without being aware that its production involved a labour not unlike the slow process of chipping away fragment by fragment grain by grain the enveloping marble from the emerging statue and no small share of that labour is expended in covering its own traces the net result is that from richard carville to a modern chronicle these novels present themselves to the public with an air of solid dignity and conscious worth that involuntarily calls to mind portly middle-aged prosperous gentlemen in immaculate frock-coats who typify the so-called pillars of the church in other words the sum and substance of all adverse criticism upon mr winston churchill's books may be reduced to this there is in them all a streak of literary pharisaism a certain air of seeming to thank god openly that they are not like other books let other books if they choose be frivolous or melodramatic or ultra-modern according to any one of the fifty various and transitory schools of fiction that spring up and pass like mushrooms mr churchill's books desire no kinship with such as these they aspire to be literature spelled with a capital l they are carefully fashioned upon the great mid-victorian models one almost questions whether the author did not deliberately draw his dividing line at thackeray and refused to regard any subsequent developments of technique in fiction as deserving of notice the consequence is that in his method of construction mr churchill has retained the chief faults of his early models as well as the qualities that he has sought to emulate the conception of a well-knit plot without irrelevant characters and episodes and with the interest strongly focused upon some one main issue is distinctly modern so also is the instinct which tells an author at what point in the infinite sequence of human events his special series of episodes logically begins and at what point it ends the naive assumption of the earlier novelists that a story begins with the birth of a particular man or woman has long since become an exploded fallacy the writers of to-day recognize that in its broadest sense the life-story of any human being has already begun unnumbered generations before his birth and that its end is not within the powers of human foresight to predict while in a narrower sense the history of a human life cannot in itself constitute a story structure but is at best the raw material for several stories now when an author chooses to follow the old-fashioned method of introducing his characters practically in their cradles and following their subsequent development step by step and year by year well into the prime of life it is too much to ask of him that he shall give us a well-constructed plot indeed the form itself warns us that he is attempting nothing more complex than a family chronicle and therefore necessarily of a loose and rambling nature as a matter of fact mr churchill's plots are not his strong point 
as we shall see in taking up the separate volumes they give the impression of wandering aimlessly along the highways and byways of life most of the time with no clear structural reason for turning to the right rather than the left no preconceived goal toward which the various tangled threads of the story are converging now there is no intention of conveying the idea that mr churchill is unaware of what he is doing on the contrary nothing is clearer than the fact that he knows perfectly well the sort of plot structure that he is using and that he could have used quite a different kind had he so chosen his method is the time-honoured method of fielding and of thackeray and to some extent of dickens like thackeray he chooses to think of himself as master of the show and to keep us reminded that it is he who pulls the wires that make the puppets dance he even interrupts himself occasionally to regret between parentheses that the space limit of his book will not let him tell us more about some particular character whom he has just introduced but assures us that we shall meet that character again in a later volume mr churchill likes to do this sort of thing and the mere fact that the whole tendency of fiction to-day is toward the objective method and away from the old-fashioned confidential relation between author and public obviously does not concern him in the least after all it is a sufficiently harmless mannerism but none the less as out of date as powdered wigs and knee-breeches the practice of chronicling the childhood of hero or heroine calls for rather more specific notice there is of course only one ground on which it may be defended just as there is only one ground on which to defend the analogous practice of narrating the family history of the hero's ancestors for several generations back if we grant that human character is the result of heredity modified by environment then of course a knowledge of a man's ancestry explains his inherited traits and a knowledge of his early surroundings shows how those traits have become modified but now and then we find a man or woman in whom heredity has had a free hand and environment has accomplished little or nothing we realize that it would have made small practical difference in which hemisphere they had been reared or what manner of guardians and teachers they had had the strong primitive impulses and passions of their race whether for good or bad are no more to be curbed or changed by food or climate or higher mathematics than the colour of their hair and eyes when dealing with such strongly defined characters it is simply a waste of time to picture minutely the influences to which their childhood was subjected mr churchill's heroes and heroines belong with hardly an exception to this dominant self-sufficient class even as small children they have a precocious assurance they foreshadow with surprising accuracy the men and women they are destined to become it is true that mr churchill's portraiture of childhood is rather well done he allows himself in these portions to fall into a lighter vein he comes nearer than anywhere else to genuine humour nevertheless the impression he leaves in one and all of his books is that his characters have become what they are not because of environment but in defiance of it and for that reason the introductory chapters of each book are structurally superfluous the foregoing remarks however apply only so long as we are considering mr churchill's books as studies of human character but it must be remembered that a second and in his eyes an equally important function of his books is to picture the life of a period the net results of national or social development there can be no question that he has succeeded admirably in handling big backgrounds few american novelists have achieved as he has that sense of wide spaces of earth and sky the weariness of dragging miles the monotony of passing years the motley movements of humanity in the mass the whole fundamental trick of making us feel the relative value of our own modest holdings our individual interests 
our brief hour as contrasted with mankind and with eternity it makes small difference whether he is describing a drunken broil in a colonial tavern an indian massacre in kentucky or a political riot in a new england state legislature in either case his trick of characterization is as graphic and almost as indefatigable as that of a camera lens you see face after face figure behind figure each drawn with fewer and swifter strokes as they become more blurred by distance yet every one individualized and recognizable and back of these beyond the range of sight you still feel the presence of a crowd shoulder jostling shoulder tongue answering tongue full of the rough virility of conflict taken as a whole with the exception of his earliest and latest the celebrity and a modern chronicle mr churchill's books may not unjustly be defined as comprehensive panoramas of american history each standing as a vivid summing-up of some national or local crisis regarding the literal accuracy of historical novels in general and of mr churchill's in particular those critics may quibble to whom the letter seems more essential than the spirit one cannot escape the conviction that the author of richard carville errs too far on the side of accuracy that if his facts were questioned he would be painfully prompt in producing original documents indeed there are episodes in richard carville and in the crisis and the crossing as well that narrowly escape the weariness of the historical monograph and make one wish that the author had burned his library and relied upon the sheer force of his imagination les trois mousquetaires had a scant allowance of historical accuracy but it had what was far more essential a generous supply of real flesh and blood and yet any fair estimate of mr churchill must necessarily recognize that his favorite formula narrowly misses that of the so-called epic novel just as we have already seen that marion crawford missed it in his sarachanesca series he uses with conscious purpose a double theme first the big basic idea underlying some national or ethical crisis and secondly a specific human story standing out vividly in the central focus with the larger wider theme serving as background where his stories fail to achieve the epic magnitude is in lacking that essential symbolic relationship between the greater and the lesser theme his central figures find their lives moulded and modified as all lives must be by the conditions and the events of their own epoch but they are scarcely symbolic of that epoch they do not leave the impression that they are the mouthpiece of their country and generation thus richard carville was at best an example of the colonial aristocracy but he was not in character or career such an embodiment of it that the term a richard carville would have any real significance david ritchie in the crossing is part and parcel of that movement which began the great western migration that was destined to stop only at the pacific but there is nothing in his life which in any way symbolizes a great awakening he is of his time and generation because he has to be rather than because he would not have had it otherwise if he could it has seemed worth while briefly to point out in a general way the extent to which mr churchill parts company with the modern trend of technique and fiction to note these differences is by no means equivalent to passing censure upon them by a stricter system of construction a sterner elimination of non-essentials it is quite possible that mr churchill's novels would have lost as much as they would have gained they would at least have lost one element which every reader of them must feel to a marked degree namely that sense of the unexpected and inexplicable that infinitude of daily happenings of accidents and coincidences the meaning of which in the ultimate pattern of life must always baffle us 
aside from a short satiric play the title mart mr churchill's published works now include seven volumes of these the earliest in point of actual composition was richard carville although its publication was anticipated by some months by the celebrity a clever farce of the mistaken identity type which served its purpose as a sort of comic poster to attract public attention to his more ambitious work of the remaining six that have since come at almost uniform intervals from his pen the earlier three richard carville the crisis and the crossing are historical novels in the accepted sense coniston and mr crewe's career while presumably resting on an equally solid foundation of local history fall into the class of the american political novel with its unsavoury accessories of bribery lobbying and bossism the type familiarly exemplified in paul lester ford's honourable peter sterling and bran whitlock's thirteenth district the last of the six a modern chronicle is a new departure for mr churchill being an ambitious study of american marriage and divorce and belonging in theme if not in magnitude on the shelf with professor robert herrick's much discussed together the statement was made earlier in this chapter that plot construction was mr churchill's principal weakness and the justness of this criticism may easily be seen by a brief examination of the separate stories to begin with richard carville concerns itself with the life history of an orphan boy in the province of maryland reared by his stern old grandfather in strict tory principles but little by little imbibing revolutionary doctrines from associates of his own generation an unscrupulous uncle scheming for the family inheritance has young carville waylaid kidnapped and flung aboard a pirate craft to be later dropped over the rail at a convenient time the pirate boat however is scuttled by the famous naval hero john paul jones and carville is the sole survivor subsequently fate lands him in london penniless and without friends where he spends some weary months in the debtor's prison knowing all the while that the girl whom he loved back in america is now also in london courted by dukes and earls and that his present predicament is known quite well to the girl's father who is only too glad to have a troublesome suitor out of harm's way the rest of the story consists of some swift changes of fortune some well-drawn pictures of fashionable english life in which horace walpole charles james fox and other historic personages take part a few stirring naval battles and finally peace between the two countries and carville happily married and settled on his ancestral acres it is to be noticed that this plot is merely a string of episodes governed for the most part by the intervention of chance it is little more than a highly developed picaresco type with rather less cohesion than the average dumas romance whatever literary quality it possesses is due not to plot but to individual portraiture and a pervading sense of atmosphere the specific story of david ritchie in the crossing has even less cohesion than richard carville throughout the greater part of it ritchie is a mere lad and as drummer-boy accompanies the expedition led by george rogers clark from kentucky northward to the wabash river and vaisennes it is a chronicle of border warfare of indian treachery and ghastly massacres it is scarcely fiction at all in the strict sense of the term but rather a sort of pictorial history of the clark expedition painted in vivid words in the second half the plot grows more cohesive ritchie like carville is an orphan with a worthless uncle who instead of befriending him flees to england at the outbreak of the war the uncle's wife takes advantage of her husband's desertion to elope with her lover leaving a small son to shift for himself this son ritchie's cousin later makes it his chief object in life to hunt down his mother and her companion and inflict vengeance upon them 
but long years pass before he finally through richie's intervention finds her in new orleans dying of yellow fever and is reconciled with her before her death this and the additional fact that richie has found in new orleans the young woman whom he is destined to marry constitute all that is worth epitomizing in the way of a central plot now it is the lot of a good many human beings both in childhood and in later years to drift along the stream of life not shaping their own destinies but allying them with the destinies of others and it often happens that somewhere or other in the course of such drifting they meet a woman whom they wish to marry it does not however usually occur to a novelist that this is the stuff of which books are made mr churchill's own explanation of the crossing is that it expresses the first instinctive reaching out of an infant nation which was one day to become a giant in his opinion no annals in the world's history are more wonderful than the story of the conquest of kentucky and tennessee by the pioneers he confesses that it was a difficult task to gather together in a novel the elements necessary to picture this movement that the autobiography of david ritchie is as near as he can come to its solution and that he has a great sense of its incompleteness there is but one flaw in his self-criticism the trouble with the crossing is not that it lacks completeness but that it fails to be a novel passing over the crisis that story of the civil war which is at best a less vigorous repetition of the qualities and the shortcomings of richard carville we come to coniston this is a book which deserves rather careful consideration not merely because it shows us people no longer through the veil of romantic glamour but face to face but more especially because it is the one book he has yet written the plot of which will bear careful dissection coniston may not unfairly be called a prose epic of political corruption as it existed in new england a generation or more ago from the critic's standpoint it is quite unimportant whether the particular state that the author had in mind happened to be vermont or connecticut or rhode island what is important is that we get a sense of life and of conflict of impulses to do right clashing with the instincts of self-protection of a grim party battle for the political survival of the fittest and the entire state its banks its franchises its governor its legislature all reposing in the pocket of one man the undisputed party boss this man jethro bass simple farmer by origin taciturn inscrutable with his streak of sardonic humour and his slight unforgettable stammer is easily the most important single figure that mr churchill has drawn one might venture to predict the most important figure that he is destined ever to draw jethro bass is not merely an individual he is the concrete presentment of a type which though well-nigh passed away is destined to be remembered it is not too much praise to say that in the annals of fiction a jethro bass deserves to stand for as definite a figure as a pecksniff a micawber or a becky sharp a big vital political issue for a background a unique and dominant figure for the central interest are already two prime factors of an important novel what binds the whole together and makes this volume in contrast to all mr churchill's others a piece of good construction is that the individual tragedy of the story grows out of the self-same source as the bigger issue namely jethro bass's utter unscrupulousness like mr churchill's other books coniston gives us the entire childhood of its heroine in fact it goes further than that and shows us the youth the marriage and death of the heroine's mother but this time he has treacherously justified his method 
the childhood of cynthia wetherell under the guardianship of jethro is to be sure no more a study of character moulded by environment than was the childhood of david ritchie in the crossing or as we shall presently see the childhood of honora leffingwell in a modern chronicle but it happens that in coniston the focus of interest is not cynthia wetherell but jethro bass and the story of her childhood serves a second and more important purpose as a masterly study of a man's slow transformation under the influence of affection and trust jethro bass once hoped to marry cynthia wetherell's mother at that time he was too young with a choice of ways before him he chose then and there to take the first step toward the political conquest of his town the first step toward the bossism of the whole state and the girl's clear fearless eyes looking into his own read him aright and knew there could be no happiness for her where there could not also be honour afterwards when jethro befriends the dead woman's orphan daughter and sees in her those same clear fearless eyes his one great wish is that she may always be spared the knowledge of his knavery the source of his wealth the secret of his power to the reader all the undercurrents of dishonest politics are exposed naked and unashamed mr churchill has nowhere else approached than sheer narrative power the graphic vigour of the best scenes in this book that for instance of the wonderful woodchuck session in which the truro franchise is jammed through the legislature by a bit of unparalleled trickery and the equally remarkable interview with president grant in which jethro saves the power almost wrested from him by forcing the appointment of his candidate for a second-class post-office scenes like these are enough on which to build a reputation they belong to the memorable situations in the annals of fiction and the climax to which the story inevitably works up is a fitting conclusion to an exceptionally good piece of constructive craftsmanship it happens that the life-happiness of cynthia can be purchased by jethro only at the price of his own political downfall and this sacrifice he makes freely gladly secretly to the world at large he is defeated and dethroned a man who has outlived his usefulness to cynthia he is not merely the source of happiness but a man in whom her affection has worked a great and wonderful reformation the climax of the book triumphantly achieves the double purpose of effecting a crisis equally momentous to the individuals of the central group and to the world at large that forms the story's background it would be an anticlimax after coniston to examine in detail mr crewe's career which treats of the same order of corruption in state politics but deals with a later generation and in a spirit of lighter comedy accordingly there remains only mr churchill's new volume a modern chronicle here for the first time the author ventures to make woman the american woman of to-day his central point of interest it is rather remarkable that no one has taken the trouble to point out that in all his earlier books the portrayal of woman was one of mr churchill's serious deficiencies even in his period of romanticism his men stood out strongly like living portraits but his women have for the most part been mere conventional sketches either quite colourless like dorothy manners in richard carville or impossible symbols of all the virtues at once like cynthia wetherell in coniston that is why it is such a surprising thing to find him giving us in honora leffingwell a woman who is really alive a woman full of illogical moods and caprices a woman who take her from start to finish is very nearly although not quite a consistent piece of characterization it is rather exasperating to see by how narrow a margin mr churchill missed doing a big piece of work in a modern chronicle that he did miss so doing is due mainly to that inherent fault of his 
the unwillingness or inability to construct carefully honora leffingwell's story seems too largely a matter of the whims of chance to be of great significance to the world at large her childhood and youth are sketched at rather tedious length with the net result that we know she almost but not quite made up her mind to marry peter Irwin, the close companion of these early years subsequently after a week's acquaintance she consents to marry howard spence portly prosperous and not too young a typical modern business man whose soul is in the money market and who after marriage does not realize that a wife needs an occasional word of appreciation honora naturally seeks attention elsewhere and finds it in trixton brent who is an adept at making love to other men's wives what saves her from trixton brent she never knows his failure is not his fault it is simply a matter of temperament but when she meets hugh chiltern with his personal charm and his unspeakable reputation she ceases to have a will of her own being for the first time in his life seriously in love he easily persuades her to break with her husband go west into the exile of a divorce colony and after the needful delay marry him but her second marriage for love proves as big a failure as her first marriage for ambition and when chiltern rides a horse against which he has been warned and breaks his neck in consequence the reader gives a sigh of relief then peter Irwin, her childhood friend drifts into view again and we leave her on the brink of a third matrimonial experiment just a succession of episodes you see the story of a woman who does not know her own mind the disillusion and unrest of the first marriage are good workmanship so also are the dragging weariness and the heartache of that year in the divorce colony but the book lacks finality there is no good reason for supposing that the third marriage the marriage of sympathy and pity will turn out one whit better than the other two regarding mr churchill's place in american fiction it is possible to speak with more confidence than in the case of most of his contemporaries that he has a widespread popularity is a fact that cannot be disregarded and this popularity instead of waning has remained a constant quantity he builds his books solidly as one builds a house upon a rock with the intention that it shall not soon be torn down he has moreover the advantage of a careful style and a scrupulous regard for truth there are some of us who are inclined to feel that he has been taken rather too seriously by the present generation in much the same way that mrs humphrey ward has been overrated by her contemporaries of the two writers it seems a fairly safe prediction that mr churchill has a rather better chance of maintaining his present level in the years to come he is still young and his later work shows a real gain in the knowledge of what fiction as a serious literary form should mean End of chapter three